Chapter Five of Religion and Science by John Charlton Hardwick. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Rise of an anti-religious science. Atmospheric conditions. As we have seen, a mechanical view of the universe was not felt by thinkers like Descartes or Newton, or even Hobbes, to involve any consequences that were necessarily hostile to religion. The new science sometimes might be anti-theological, because the current theology still seemed too much infected with scholasticism, but it was not, in the hands of its most notable exponents, anti-religious. Science had no quarrel with religion as such nor even with a rational type of theology. Of course, the new views aroused many suspicions, and did not escape criticism at the hands of church authorities, both Protestant and Catholic. And, as we have seen, some early scientists paid very dearly for their allegiance to the spirit of scientific inquiry. But as time went on, actual persecution became impossible, morally and practically. But theologians were never, during the seventeenth century at least, quite reconciled to a science and a philosophy which seemed to them to be leading men towards areas quite uninhabitable for religion. But in spite of suspicions on either side, and the prevalence of some measure of intolerance, it cannot be said that relations between the scientists or philosophers and the theologians were very seriously strained until well on in the eighteenth century. Anti-Religious Propaganda that this comparatively pacific state of affairs came to an end was the fault, primarily at least, neither of the theologians nor of the scientists. A different atmosphere gradually began to envelop and to embitter the controversy. Orthodox religion, especially in Catholic countries, came to be associated with political reaction, and the most envenomed onslaughts began to be made upon what seemed to be the chief stronghold of a discredited regime. Especially was this the case in France, where corrupt political conditions were aggravated by the intense social misery which they had created. Thus France became the cradle of the phenomenon known as anti-clericalism, which is the product not so much of disbelief in a creed as hatred of a system. It was the correlative of a church in which religion was extinct, for genuine Catholicism had been rooted out of France early in the 18th century just as Protestantism had been drowned in blood a century before. Footnote. We refer, of course, to the promulgation of the bull Unigenitus, procured from Pope Clement XI by the Jesuits, when their opponents, the Jansenists, of all professions and classes, were subjected to imprisonment, confiscation, and every species of oppression. The maneuver is characterized by another historian as a struggle of narrow-minded fanaticism, allied to absolutely unscrupulous political ambition, against all the learning and virtue which the French clergy still possessed. End footnote. Science popularized. In two respects, France, during the second half of the 18th century, was far in advance of other countries. No other literature of that age can be compared with the French for the skill and charm with which scientific views were expressed there was no lack of first-rate propagandists. And not only in the popularization, but in the systematic teaching of science, France, for a long period, led the way. Footnote. Even before the age of the Revolution, Paris possessed many great schools. The Collège de France was founded in 1530. There was the Collège École de Chirurgie, the Jardin de Plantes, 
the École Royale de Mines, etc. End footnote. Whereas the history of English or German literature of the 18th century could be written almost without reference to science, it is with scientific problems that the names of some of the most brilliant French literateurs are associated. And whereas in England scientific men worked, in spite of the existence of the Royal Society, more or less in isolation, in France the savants have always been a brotherhood. Footnote. Mertz says of Newton, in his own country, that fruitful cooperation, which can only be secured by an academic organization and by endowment of research, was wanting. As late as 1740, the whole revenue of the Royal Society was only 232 pounds per annum. In footnote. Voltaire. One of the most notorious names associated with the type of propaganda referred to is that of Voltaire, 1694-1778. Voltaire's polemic cannot be described as anti-religious, for he himself was a theist. It was rather political in nature. The object of his attack was the Catholic Church as existing in France in his day, which he regarded as the chief surviving obstacle to human progress. Écraser l'infâme was his motto, and if this seems a trifle fanatical, let us not forget, as an acute critic has observed, that what Catholicism was accomplishing in France in the first half of the eighteenth century was not anything less momentous than the slow strangling of French civilization. Voltaire was an industrious and prolific writer. His works are numbered by scores. But he was also a master of French prose, and he was universally read. From the point of view of the history of European thought, his importance lies in his popularization in France of the Newtonian physics. Footnote. He published his Elements de la Philosophie de Newton in 1738. Newtonisme was a word coined by him, and became associated with a mechanical view of nature. He also conducted a vigorous polemic against certain religious notions, then current, but now out of date, and which need not here detain us. Voltaire was an anti-clerical, but he was not hostile to religion. He was chiefly regarded as an exponent of English, i.e. progressive, ideas. La Métri. An advance in the materialistic direction was taken, however, by La Métri, 1709-1751, who approached the problem from the side of physiology. He was a physician by profession. His two important contributions were Histoire naturelle de l'âme, 1745, and L'homme machine, 1748. The titles are sufficient to indicate the scope of these works. That of the latter points back to Descartes, who had applied the mechanical theory to animals only, and not to man. La Métrie extended his application to include man. The implications of this theory did not escape La Métrie's contemporaries. Diderot and his Encyclopedia a definite period in the history of thought is certainly marked by the successful attempt on the part of a group of progressive thinkers to extend the circle open to scientific ideas by the publication of an encyclopedia which should contain all the latest knowledge and speculation. The credit for this notable performance was due to Diderot, who, in spite of immense difficulties, which were aggravated by the ecclesiastical authorities and the supporters of reaction in general, carried the work through to a triumphant conclusion. The first volume appeared in 1751. The work was composed with an eye to current prejudices, 
The language was guarded, but the anti-clerical tendency of the whole was by no means obscure. Diderot, however, did not obtrude in the encyclopedia the definitely anti-religious opinions which he had developed and which are revealed in his correspondence. Holbach A disciple of the encyclopedist, Holbach, a young German settled in Paris, was bolder than his master, and published, under the name of a savant who had recently died, a book which became widely notorious, and has been called the Bible of Materialism, the Système de la Nature, 1770. Like Voltaire's Elements and La Maitre's Lone Machine, it was published in Holland. Quote, the book is materialism reduced to a system. It contains no really new thoughts. Its significance lies in the energy and indignation with which every spiritualistic and dualistic view was run to earth on account of its injuriousness, both in practice and in theory, unquote, is the estimate of a distinguished and impartial writer. Rumor gave the credit of its authorship to Diderot, who was so disturbed by the compliment as hastily to leave Paris for the frontier. His admiration of it is, however, recorded. After proclaiming his disgust at the contemporary fashion of mixing up incredulity and superstition, he observes that no such fault is to be found in the system of nature. Quote, the author is not an atheist in one page and a deist in another. His philosophy is all of a piece. Unquote. Certainly, to those with an appetite for negative dogmatism, the work left nothing to be desired. The following passage indicates the attitude and method of the author, who, in the matter of style, did not fall short of the French tradition. Quote, if we go back to the beginning, we shall always find that ignorance and fear have created gods. Fancy, enthusiasm, or deceit has adorned or disfigured them. Weakness worships them, credulity preserves them in life, custom regards them, and tyranny supports them in order to make the blindness of men serve its own ends. Unquote. The philosophy of religion which inspired these sentences may appear to us sufficiently crude, and indeed an impartial reader will have to confess that much of this eighteenth-century polemic against religion, however well-intentioned, is singularly wide of the mark. It is all characterized by an imperfect knowledge of the psychological foundations of religion, and quite devoid of what is now termed the historic sense. The faults of Voltaire and Holbach, however, were those of their age, which was often short-sighted in its recognition of facts, and superficial in its reasoning from them. Even Dr. Johnson, who found this section of contemporary French literature so distasteful, never laid his finger upon its real weakness, the fundamental fallacies upon which it rested escaped him. He, like Voltaire and the rest, was a child of the age. Propaganda, not science. It is very doubtful whether the genuine scientists, who devoted themselves not to propaganda but to research, could have been ready to sanction the uses to which their own discoveries were put. From the exhaustive references of Lange in his History of Materialism, it is evident that, the extreme views of Lemaitre, Diderot, and Holbach cannot be fathered on any of the great scientists or philosophers, but were an attempt to supply scientific principles to the solution of philosophical, ethical, or religious questions, frequently for practical and political purposes. There are certainly risks attached to the popularization of the results of scientific research. 
Theories have to be presented with an appearance of finality, which does not legitimately belong to them, and sometimes in a somewhat startling aspect, otherwise the reader is left cold, for it is excitement rather than genuine information that attracts the majority. As a judicious writer has observed, no ideas lend themselves to such easy, but likewise to such shallow generalizations as those of science. Once let out of the hand which uses them in the strict and cautious manner by which alone they lead to valuable results, they are apt to work mischief. Because the tool is so sharp, the object to which it is applied seems to be so easily handled. The correct use of scientific ideas is only learnt by patient training, and should be governed by the not easily acquired habit of self-restraint. Scientific Progress Alongside of this rigorous propaganda, which prepared the way for the upheaval of 1789, genuine scientific progress was being made, especially in the regions of astronomy, botany, and chemistry. The ideas of Newton were taken up and elaborated by means of more efficient mathematical processes, especially the theory of infinitesimals, by the distinguished astronomer Laplace in his Système du Monde, 1796, and in the successive volumes of his Mécanique Céleste, 1799-1825, which has been called a new Principia. Important advances in chemistry are associated with the name of Lavoisier, 1743 to 1794, who introduced into that science a principle which has become axiomatic, and which today remains the foundation of all work in the laboratory. To Lavoisier belongs the merit of introducing what is known as the quantitative method into chemistry, and thus establishing that science upon the exact, that is to say, mathematical, basis, where it now rests, and putting exact research in the place of vague reasoning. His principle was that, in all chemical combinations and reactions, the total weight of the various ingredients remains unchanged. There is, in spite of appearances, neither loss nor gain of actual matter. The quantity of matter is the same at the end as at the beginning of every operation. It was Lavoisier who finally established the correct theory of combustion, that it consisted in the combination of a special element called oxygen with other bodies or elements. The Atomic Theory Lavoisier had opened a door to researches which naturally led the way to the establishment of the atomic theory of matter on an experimental and not merely a theoretical basis. That theory is indeed nothing more than the elaboration of Lavoisier's own principle. John Dalton, 1766-1844, a Manchester Quaker, published in 1810 his New System of Chemical Philosophy, where highly important conclusions are drawn, both from Lavoisier's facts and from experimental results of other chemists. Of these, Dalton gave an account and an explanation, which has ever since been the soul of all chemical reasoning. This explanation is known as his atomic theory. The two facts of which Dalton's theory is an explanation are as follows. First, Lavoisier's fact, that the total weight of substances remains always the same, be they combined in ever so many different ways. Second, that all substances, be they in large or in small quantities, combine with each other, or separate from each other, in definite and fixed proportions. 
The theory of Dalton was that these combinations take place between independent particles of matter, which are indestructible and indivisible. These atoms of the various elements have definite weights which are responsible for the proportion in which they are found to combine. These facts of proportion in combination, or chemical affinity, could not be accounted for by the theory which regards matter as continuous, but only by the opposite theory, that it is discrete, i.e., divided up into particles. Philosophical Corollaries These strictly scientific theories associated with the name of Laplace, Lavoisier, and Dalton tended to strengthen in the popular estimation the philosophical conclusions of writers like Holbach. The scientists themselves remained agnostic with regard to questions that lay outside their scope. They maintained here the correct attitude for scientific research. The question put by Napoleon to Laplace, why he had not introduced the name of God into the Mécanique Celeste, was out of place, and deserved the crushing reply it received. Scientific research is not concerned with questions of philosophy. Still, it did not escape popular attention that the old pillar of a mechanistic view of the universe now seemed to be reinforced by another. The theory of the conservation of energy was now supplemented by that of the indestructibility of matter, Lavoisier. And to crown all, the old atomic theory, which Lucretius had made the foundation of his dogmatic materialism, was now re-established on an experimental basis. So far as physical science was concerned, the situation seemed menacing to a religious view of life. Men felt that they inhabited a world of indestructible matter, moved by a certain measure of force, unchangeable and fixed. The prison of determinism and matter was closing around them. End of chapter 5